This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. When you need your bank, Capital One is right in the palm of your hand. So you can check your balance, deposit checks, pay bills and transfer money from your phone with a top rated app. This is banking reimagined. Get started online anytime. What's in your wallet? Capital One and a member FDIC. This is a BBC Radio 4 archive edition of Alistair Cook's Letter from America. Good morning. Now is the time for all good men to come to the aid of the party. If it's understood that the party is not a political party, but the Washington Party, the glittering shindig that will be thrown for George Herbert Walker Bush for about three days of next week, beginning on Thursday, going through the inauguration on Friday, and winding up with a final blowout on Saturday. Let the new hero be paraded and cheered through the fair before, next week, we set him up at the coconut shy and start to knock him down. This is the standard procedure, a tradition of civility and goodwill towards any about-to-be-inaugurated president, no matter who he is, from whichever party. I recall with a wince my introduction to this tradition, though there was no inaugural festival. It was only a few days after Franklin Roosevelt had dropped dead in Georgia. And suddenly a man from Missouri, whom nobody outside Washington knew very much about, was suddenly president of the United States. I don't suppose more than 40 of us of the press corps in those days shuffled into the Oval Office of the White House when the Secret Service gave us the signal to enter for President Truman's first press conference. As we were moving in, I remember expressing what I assumed was a shared mood of anxiety verging on alarm about the qualifications of the new man. And it did seem then that a midget was trying to fill the footprints of a giant. I said something of the sort to the man next to me, the Washington Bureau chief of one of the national weekly news magazines. To my astonishment and embarrassment, he turned on me. That's no way to talk, he said about a new president. This is the time to build him up not tear him down. Well, anyway, Truman, it was clear, after that first press conference, didn't need our sympathy or condescension. He turned out to be about as diffident as a sergeant major. He snapped and crackled at the press with much good humour, but also with occasional slaps at people whose questions, he thought, showed that they ought to go away and read over the Constitution. Well, today, in Washington, this capital of mischief, vortex of rumour, cooking pot of gossip and malice, in Washington today, you can't hear or read a bad word about George Bush. It takes an actual effort of memory to recall how all the press in the early spring was rollicking in the fun and games of George Bush's unfortunately preppy manner his accent, his incurable habit of, in moments of bafflement or temper, 
stammering out such lurid epithets as by golly or darn it. The now-forgotten Don Regan, Mr. Regan's all-powerful chief of staff, wrote in his memoir that when he told Vice President Bush that the President's appointments calendar was controlled by Mrs. Reagan on the advice of her astrologer. When I was finished, Regan wrote, the Vice President uttered what was a very strong expletive for him. Good God, he said. Mr. Bush was being written off as a candidate after he lost the Iowa primary. He was shown, mockingly, wearing blue jeans and a windbreaker, driving a truck through the snows of New Hampshire, a last pathetic effort, it seemed, to appear as a man of the people. But Senator Dole, the recent winner, was too witty, too mean to poor old George Bush in New Hampshire, and Mr. Bush leapt back again. The preppy stigma was plucked away once for all when he borrowed the most artful and gifted of President Reagan's speechwriters, a lady not to be forgotten in the history of president-making, Peggy Noonan, and she wrote Mr. Bush's acceptance speech for the New Orleans Convention. It was simple, gutsy, very eloquent, and set a surprising new tone with its hopes of a gentler, kinder nation. I don't know if Mr. Bush copied the Churchill habit of rehearsing a speech before a mirror for hours on end, but George Bush, the Republican nominee, suddenly looked like a new man, sounded like a new man, a new voice, a new type. We rarely heard the word preppy after that. And then during the campaign, a new Bush was fashioned by the producers and writers of the Bush commercials, a downright, glib, scolding, mean Bush, hammering away, to the distress of a lot of people, at mainly two themes. A Massachusetts convict who, out on a weekend pass, had committed rape and murder. And the fact that Governor Dukakis carried a dreadful letter on his forehead, but wouldn't admit it. The letter was the dreaded L, liberal. That touched the lowest depth of Mr. Bush's campaign, but also it appeared it was the most effective part. In the wake of the election, most Democrats and many moderate Republicans were saddened and embarrassed by the public image of the Bush who had won. But then, once the interminable campaign is over, the people heave a great sigh. Let bygones be bygones. The American people have a short political memory. They didn't have to forgive the mean, jabbing George Bush of the campaign. They simply forgot him. That character is now as dead as the laughable preppy. So there is yet another new George Bush. And the people who know him best and have worked with him say that the two former Bushes were both false fronts. The first, an invention of the media, the second, a ferocious battle dress that Mr. Bush was only too happy to shed. So now he is the traditional incoming new man and given the benefit of every doubt. His cabinet is complete 
and pays no dues to the far right or the television evangelists who gave him such hefty support. It's a collection of moderate Republicans, and it's entirely a cabinet of insiders, of Washington veterans. Now, this is odd, almost to the point of hilarity, when you consider that both Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan campaigned and won their presidencies on the theme that government was the big culprit, Washington insiders were the villains, and that what the country needed was new blood from the outside, men from the country, uncorrupted by the machinery and the machinations of power. So first arrived the so-called Georgia Mafia, and then the troop of Californians new to the capital city. True, George Bush has brought in and will bring in some old buddies from Texas, but none of them is a newcomer to Washington in its ways. And for the most part, they, his cabinet and his advisers are moderate, conservative Easterners. Now that again is an extraordinary reversal of a movement we have written about for 20 years and long ago decided was irreversible. For the first 50 years and more of this century, the Republican Party drew its strength from Eastern money and Midwestern idealism, rural, independent republicanism. No later than 1964, when Senator Goldwater of Arizona was the Republican candidate, we all reported, as a great new lurch of American history, that the power of the Republican Party had gone to the West and Southwest, and the new generation in the Deep South that had, once for all, deserted its ancient links with the Democrats. From now on, we said, the money is banked in Los Angeles and San Francisco, and the ideology comes from the Sun Belt, from Florida all the way to California. So, not at all remarked on, so far as I've seen, is the geographical setup of the Bush administration, which quietly, without protest or excuse, has moved the power of the party back to the old boys of New England and the Northeast, plus a little infusion of new blood from Texas. It's remarkable, and I wouldn't dare say just now what it signifies, or will come to signify. And if it's traditional to think no evil of the new man and wish him nothing but the best, it's even more proper to think only on what is lovely and of good report in the presidency of the man who is leaving it. The columnists and TV pundits are very busy this week getting in their brief historical surveys of the Reagan years. A national paper printed on Wednesday a page sampling of one-liners, final crisp opinions from a cross-section of Americans. They go all the way from a man in Massachusetts giving thanks to God for bringing America a savior at a time when the nation was unsure of itself, to a 67-year-old man in Oregon who says, I see Ronald Reagan as a stubborn ideologue who has led an administration filled with lies, dishonesty, deceit, and corruption. He will be remembered for having led a nation into a moral, ethical, 
financial and industrial decline. In Omaha, a 17-year-old, he restored patriotism, he strengthened the economy, and lowered unemployment, and gave us pride again in our country, one of the greatest presidents. I could go on and on, spanning a gamut from idolatry to disgust, but those short quotations record the actual balance of opinion by two to one. He came in in early 1981 with 60% of the people taking a good view of him. His popularity dipped down into the 40s twice, once after the Marines were murdered in Lebanon, and then during the Iran-Contra revelations. But it was soon up again, and at the end he leaves it in unprecedented popularity. 66% of Americans are very much for him. The other night on television, Governor Mario Cuomo of New York, who it's generally agreed could have had the Democratic nomination last year for the asking, was asked in a phone-in program what the verdict of history would be on Ronald Reagan. In the short run, he thought favorable. In the long run, he couldn't say. This was no time, he said, to mention mentioning the deficit, the poor, a drug-ridden society, the homeless. You had to say that he inspired the country with a simple, idealistic view of its history and its aims. And, said Governor Cuomo, who is not this year, anyway, about to knock the most popular president in history, he was beloved, but then he's a lovable man. The governor who lacerated this administration at the Democratic Convention in 1984 as uncaring, greedy, uncompassionate, swollen with false pride, Governor Cuomo is plainly biding his time till, shall we say, 1992. That was Letter from America with Alastair Cook. You can find more Letters from America and thousands of other programs for curious minds on the Radio 4 website.